Hey guys, Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bytes episode 24. Today I'm speaking with Teresa Payton, former White House CIO in the George W. Bush administration and current CEO at Fortalist Solutions. We discuss securing the president's technology, keeping our voting booth secure, and much more. Enjoy. This podcast is supported by Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your own professional website. Choose a template you love or start from scratch, drag and drop to customize anything, and use advanced design features like video backgrounds and image galleries. You can even add professional business solutions like an online store, booking system, or blog. I've personally tested and reviewed Wix on Best Techie and can say without a doubt that Wix is extremely easy to use and a great choice for both novice and advanced users. So go ahead, try it yourself. Go to Wix.com and create your own website today. That's Wix, W-I-X.com. I'm here with Teresa Payton, the former CIO at the in the White House at, under the Bush administration, and currently the CEO of Fortalist Solutions, a cybersecurity firm. She was also on CBS in a TV uh, TV show called Hunted, a reality show. So, Teresa, welcome and thanks for joining me today on the podcast. Oh, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, uh, me too. I'm super excited that you're here. There's a lot of really important topics and issues that are going on in the world today related to cybersecurity and hacking and things like that that I'd love to talk to you about. So I'm really excited that you're on. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to just kind of get a little bit about, you know, give people kind of a quick preview in terms of what you've done, uh, what you're doing now, who you are, that type of thing. Sure. Um, Yeah, so I always say this is a career that really chose me. Uh, I mean, if you had asked me when I was coming out of graduate school at University of Virginia, I would have told you, which I said during my job interviews, uh, I want to change the world through artificial intelligence. And so I loved uh, doing artificial intelligence development. And I got this incredible opportunity to work at a company, Barnett Bank, which is now part of Bank of America. And they allowed me to work on some pretty cool cutting edge projects for them. And at that time, working on cutting edge and cool projects for them, I was on the cutting edge of people trying to do terrorist financing and money laundering and fraud. And we didn't really call it cybercrime back then, but basically the kind of the early stages of what we now know to be today's cybercrime. And I'm from a long line of U.S. military and law enforcement. And it's almost like this, like, something snapped in me like when I realized what was going on with these criminals trying to get in between the bank and our customers and I thought this cannot stand this is wrong and so I actually started to migrate where I would have responsibilities for fraud and security and then one day I got the opportunity to serve at the executive office of the president as the first female um, chief information officer over there and um, then when I was wrapping up my tenure at the White House, which was just an incredible honor, and so many dedicated, smart, hardworking people um, work there regardless of what party has their president in, and it's just, it's an amazing place, and amazing dedicated security and technology professionals there, and um, then really decided that I wasn't finding security companies thinking differently about security at that point in time. This was 2009. I wanted to make sure that we were, um, I really learned at the White House that if we were not user design centric first, 
and security second that we were doomed to failure. And I really couldn't t find security companies talking that way. And so my husband encouraged me with no entrepreneurs on <laughs> his family or mine to start my own business. And so here um, that brings us to today. And, you know, what's interesting is I had the opportunity to be at the White House and later go to a reality TV show. The current income of the White House was on a reality TV show and went to the White House. I don't know what that says about me. Is my career <laughs> going up or going down? I don't know. <laughs> that, you know what? I, I don't think I'm qualified to answer that one either. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, but that's a really it's a re that's a really interesting the path you took. I, I I'd be curious. You know, I'd really love to know more about you know handling how you handled the president's technology. And I realize you know in the time you were there, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. You were in uh, CIO at the White House. From 2006 to 2008, um, and technology, you know, uh, had come a long way, but you know, still, it's you know, it's come, it's it's amazing how fast technology moves. But you know, what kind no. of, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. Um, so I was I was just wondering, you know, what kind of um, work went into you know securing, let's say, the president's smartphone or computer or um, you know, and, and also at the same time, do you worry about our current president's smartphone usage? <laughs> Let's, uh, so why don't we start with the current president's smartphone usage and we'll sure. work our way backwards from there. Um, so one of the things uh, a lot of people may not realize when President Bush was in office, uh, most people know he did not carry around a smartphone. And that wasn't because he wasn't interested. It was because that we could not guarantee the absolute security and safety of the device, the software, and the firmware at that point in time. Um, I was always concerned. There was always still sort of this open risk of the potential for it to be a homing beacon in the president's pocket. And mm -hmm. so we would be prototyping phones, but I could never get to that comfort level. And President Bush was adamant that uh, we needed to continue to prototype because regardless of who came behind him, they most likely were going to want to have their own phone. So that was the great thing about when uh, President Obama was onboarded he was allowed to have a very special use, BlackBerry, very limited in use, um, had a lot of special um, implementations that happened on it to keep it safe. But one of the other protocols around that is um, it's, it's almost as if it's treated as a burner phone. So when he travels and on a regular basis, he's issued a whole brand new phone with everything set up the way it needs to be. And then his, his phone that he has is taken away it's evaluated, it had a baseline to begin with, it's evaluated against that baseline, all kinds of things are looked at, and then it's wiped clean, and then it's reissued um, for other purposes. And so there's this constant rotation to make sure that you don't end up having that homing beacon in the president's pocket or a recording device in the president's pocket. Um, the uh, President Trump, uh, you know, he obviously, he has a platform that he prefers. He likes Droid, he likes to tweet, everybody knows he likes to tweet while he's watching the news. He's pretty open about that. And uh, that process still exists today of rotating out his phone on a periodic basis to ensure the security and safety of the platform and, and really the physical whereabouts of the president. And so, you know, you may or may not like the messages, but um, mm -hmm. with that, there are these good security protocols around him trying to make that process um, and his preference of how he wants to lead um, to make him and that and those communications as safe as possible um, you know it's interesting so you brought up the time frame 2006 to 2008 um, 
I'm sure many people will remember the first iPhone was released in 2007. So, wow. I mean, right? So we were implementing, (laughs) at the White House, we were implementing the Internet of Things. Pretty much the main phone at the time was the BlackBerry, and now here comes this really cool, sexy iPhone comes out, and everybody wants to use the iPhone, which we did prototype at the time and you know, tried to understand. It was lacking in some of the enterprise software management that you need um, at a place like the White House, uh, which is why we were uncomfortable adopting it right away. But um, the White House has since adopted that as one potential device that could be used. But, you know, it's, it, it was a fabulous time for digital transformations. Uh, I had to have very high levels of operational stability, resilience, and security. Um, you know, the, during President Bush, my time there, we actually um, made upgrading the infrastructure a key priority and building out a more sophisticated security operations center and security platforms. And so you look at the White House, it's this beautiful historic building. It wasn't built for modern technology. It wasn't even really built for the modern size of our government. And so I always had to strike that balance between getting the best and newest tech in people's hands while maintaining the historical footprint and architecture and keeping everybody safe. Um, And so while I can't tell you kind of too many secrets, um, you know, (laughs) as far as kind of how we protected everything, uh, we really did have to think. um, So here's something else a lot of people may not realize about the CIO job. So you figure the president, the vice president, the 3,000 staff that service the executive office of the president across the 13 components, as well as if cabinet members are traveling on presidential business, when they travel, we are to extend the White House to them no matter where they are in the world as if they're sitting at their desk in Washington, D.C. And that is no easy feat, but, um, but you know, really a challenge we all gladly accepted and embraced. And uh, so, you know, having to think about sort of that extension of operations and truly 24 by 7 global operations and making them secure. So it's always kind of that, that balancing act. Right, right. It's funny, and, and, you know, you mentioned how, how limited the phone technology was early on, and I would imagine even, even today, uh, in, in terms of what the president can, can utilize um, because of the security concerns. It's the most powerful man in the world has, like, the least powerful smartphone, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's really for his own safety. I know, right, it's pretty exactly. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Um, so I want to change gears a little bit. I want to talk about uh, social media and... And, and, and its effect, uh, the impact that they, uh, services like Twitter and Facebook had on the elections. I'm really curious to get your take in terms of how much responsibility do you think a company like Facebook and Twitter have to the American people? Well, I mean, they actually have it globally. And right. um, so, so I'll, I'll come out and say I'm not I'm always concerned about over-regulating any private sector businesses, and I'll come I'll come back to that in a moment about over-regulation. Um, but it's a moving target. Uh, the Freedom of the Net report is a fabulous report. It's, they put one out every 12 years. And in the Freedom of the Net report, they have been sounding the alarm for several years about governments using social media and digital communications platforms. It can be anything from chats to messaging to emails, you kind of name it, uh, to actually influence elections. Now, the majority of the influencing stays within country. 
So it's the government in power trying to convince their citizens um, this is a really happy, great place and the rest of the world stinks and that's why you should keep me as a dictator despot in power, right? And mm-hmm. so, that, so that's going on. But the meddling in others' elections, sort of this political espionage, they had been sounding the alarm about this. And the challenge is, is if you think about the business model, if you think about that business model and how it's set up for most of the social media platforms, it's to connect as many people as possible, and they want you to stay on that platform and not leave because that's where their revenue comes from with ad dollars and engagement. And so they're going to give you more of what you like. It's like a kid in the candy store. The kid will never leave if you just keep giving them candy until they get sick. And so you've got (laughs) this business model, and then all of a sudden, fake personas, political espionage, misinformation campaigns, um, things that are, quote, looking newsy, but they're not really sort of trusted, vetted news organizations, um, and so, you know, sort of that, that spin cycle on some of these things. And so the challenge is, when we learned about how the data with Cambridge Analytica was, you know, misplaced, misused, however you want to put it, when we learned about the fake personas, um, the, the fake ads, and all of the manipulation, that day I said, mark my words, Silicon Valley may not know it yet, their business model changed today. And they're either going to have to learn how to adapt, or their business model is in peril. And I don't know if you saw, but Facebook... Um, had, from an active engagement, it is down. I believe what I read was 50% if you look over the last two years. So sort of mm-hmm. that active engagement is down. That's significant. So yes, they do have a responsibility. I will say, I, I feel like they um, kind of woke up about this a little late for my taste. However, I watched the testimony. I read the written testimony. I do believe they take this very seriously now, and they are trying to figure out, and they're doing their darndest to figure this out. There was a really good meeting the end of May with the intelligence community, the FBI, and Silicon Valley companies. And I don't know if you noticed the timing of this, but coming out of those meetings, you started to hear big announcements about shutting down fake personas across all the social media companies. Right, right. So they get it. They feel their responsibility. Now, here's my thing about overregulating this. GDPR... Um, and the right to be forgotten are already out and the expense burden of GDPR and the right to be forgotten is so onerous we are killing the next startup before they even get started and so the regulatory burdens everybody needs to remember they actually hurt the little guys that are trying to get up and off the ground and to be the next Facebook and to be the next Instagram and you know Twitter they don't have a prayer if they have this onerous complex regulatory obligation that they have to meet so that's something that people need to be keeping in mind when they say we need regulation on this and I think we need governance and oversight and we need to call things out when it's not working the way it should be 100% agree and I think you know that's why I think Zuckerberg was so kind of open to the idea of regulation because it really puts Facebook in a better position at the end of the day, because they have the resources and the money to, to, and, the, and, the, and the you know and the ability to, to pay lawyers and make sure that they're adhering to the re- the regulations to the you know letter of the law and all that stuff and, and a small startup just you know just doesn't have that those resources. Um, they don't. And it, it kind of it kind of cements them into the fabric of 
you know, of the internet and and and, and, and the world, you know, uh, where what people use, uh, if 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 that is, you know, if those types of regulations are in, are in play. Um, so I do agree with you on that absolutely. Um, what I what I would love to know though is, you know, you know, we've we've had all this disinformation, and and you know, you know, this fake news, uh, if you will. Um, that has kind of been very prevalent on these social platforms, and, and and companies, like you said, are now working to kind to remove a lot of that. But how easy is it for them for 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 these perpetrators who are doing this stuff um, to kind of just get right back in and create new accounts and things like that? And it's incredibly easy. And you know what? It, my my warning is the stuff that we have found could be what the Russians wanted us to find. It was a little too easy. Mm-hmm. And so if people think, like, this is really hard, and look what we did, we shut down these fake personas, it's like, you, those are the ones you found. How about the tactics you haven't figured out yet? So, for example, I don't believe it's out of the realm of possibility, because we've seen it play in other sort of cyber criminal syndicates, that um, there are a lot of people who open up an account on social media platforms and they've got followers and then it goes dormant for one reason or another, right? They do a, I'm going to have a social media detox. I'm not going to be on here for 45 days. Some people do it with like great aplomb, right? They let everybody know, bye, I really mean it, bye, (laughs) bye, I'm not going to be on social media. And and they make a big deal about it. Some people become ill or they just, life happens and they're just not as busy. Well, what's to prevent the Russians from seeking out those accounts most people have weak passwords, don't have two-factor authentication turned on, and doing account takeovers and basically doing a social media walk-in. So it's not going to hit the radar of, well, is it a brand-new account? Is the brand-new account doing these kinds of things and posting these kind of posts? They could very well hide in plain sight doing account takeovers. And as long as they're not stealing money and posting porn and doing things like that, how are people going to see them right. for who they are? Right. So, so that's to me, yeah. the, you're right. And so that's going to be where new tactics are going to be leveraged. It could be possible that the Russians could actually recruit knowing and unknowing uh, English-speaking non-Russians to be posting and reposting things. So, th- so it, there's nothing you could see that, again, not without the realm of possibility, in the realm of possibility, where they could say, hey, we've stood up this, uh, you know, this campaign headquarters and, you know, we're Americans for senators so-and-so. And it could be the Russians behind it through shell companies paying people to promote certain things on social media. So there's all different kinds of ways that they could change and tweak and fine-tune their tactics. And it's not just the Russians that are doing the misinformation campaigns. And then you also have, you know, other groups such as like QAnon and, you know, other groups out there that are kind of doing their own different types of misinformation campaigns. So more, more to come on that. We have not seen the last of these techniques, and there will be new tricks deployed um, on social media as we go into the midterm elections. And so it, I think it's great that the um, Silicon Valley companies are starting to take this incredibly seriously because our our belief system in free democratic elections is at stake if they don't. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the next things that I wanted to talk to you about actually kind of also gets into this, which is election machines and 
how you know how vulnerable are they to being hacked? I mean, we've seen. I've I read an article a couple of weeks ago on I think Motherboard on Vice, and they were talking about how these machines can you know pretty easy to be hacked. You know, is that is that you know is that a real concern of ours? And how do you keep a a, a voting machine if it, if it's electronic? You know, if it has circuits and it has some you know CPU and it has RAM and you know all that stuff. How do we keep them secure? No, you're 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 right about that. And what's great is, you know, the security researcher community has been talking about this probably over seven years. Um, there are concerns where they were hearing that some uh, election uh, election uh, vote counting machines or you know ballot boxes, uh, the digital ones, we're talking about, you know, having no paper. You know, we we love the environment, so no paper trail. Right. And I remember when they first started talking about that, I thought, that's a really bad idea. How are you going to trust but verify that how my vote was cast? How will you do statistical sampling if you don't have a backup, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the security researchers have been sounding the alarm on, on different types of issues with the voting booths. And up until recently, there was sort of this conventional wisdom, and maybe some people still have it, of, well, I mean, come on, the hacker's got to be in front of the booth, they'd have to be able to touch the booth, wouldn't somebody notice? It's not like they're connected to the Internet. And so there's kind of this justification of, well, if there was a problem, it'd be really hard to take advantage of it. What we're learning, though, and some of this came out of last year's Black Hat and DEF CON, and some of this has come out of the um, security researcher community, is this a a little-known fact, but um, oftentimes, not just election machines, but, you know, gateways uh, to allow people to work remotely from home and things like that, oftentimes somebody is on-call support, and nobody likes downtime. So the on-call support person often wants a remote opportunity to be able to remote in and try and fix it rather than having the world waiting on the tech to drive in to get there, or in some cases fly in, to fix it. And security researchers have found when they started looking at uh, equipment that the equipment had installed on it remote access software. If it's accessible for maintenance, it's accessible for hackers. There's never a bouncer standing at at the remote access door saying, oh, you're a good guy or good gal, I'm gonna let you in. Oh, no, you're the Russians. No, you can't come in here. There's no bouncer there, right? And so there's nobody to discern from good and bad. If they have the password or figure out um, a password because of bad digital hygiene, they're in. And so, yes, they are connected to the Internet. Now, there's a few things. We've got some security through obscurity. We don't have one platform. They are not supposed to all be plugged into the Internet. Not all of them are going to have this remote access software installed. And so that's it's right now it's really a race at the state level for the states to understand what are their risks and vulnerabilities. And they're out of time, really, for the midterm elections. Uh, and so whatever they're, not, whatever they're going to have to pull up and not be able to actually automatically fix, they're going to have to come up with statistical sampling and manual mitigation controls to make sure that their elections are secure. Right. So do you so do you, so so is it is it more about relying on paper in this instance or can we have a digital uh you know election machine uh that 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 is secure? I you know it, it's tough even with the paper system we had you know dangling chads right, uh, in chads. the gore <laughs> bushel yes yes so you had the hanging chads 
so there's each one has the potential for fraud and for process breakdowns. I think it's really just understanding what your vulnerabilities are and mitigating them. My recommendation would be given where we are right now in our current status, I would not do a digital vote only, no paper trail system at this time until we get a better handle on who are all the adversaries attacking uh, across the entire life cycle of elections and what are their capabilities and what is their potential to access using their capability, their motive to actually access the vulnerability. And until we get to that, everybody should have some type of a backup. Um, either the vote, if it's all digital, then the vote needs to go two different places. It needs to go local and right. it needs to go somewhere else. You have a way to sort of cross-check uh, how the votes were tallied. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I agree. Uh, so speaking of hacking, uh, you know, it, it's it, we're at a point now where it's inevitable that companies, people, even governments will will be hacked. Um, and, and and since and since since this is one of your areas of expertise, what's the what's the appropriate response that that these that you know this in, a company or a person or a government should have once they are hacked? Is there is there is there a you know is there an appropriate response that you know? Um, that, that needs to be kind of in place. And I, I guess I'm asking this because of different, you know, Equifax, for example, uh, was 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 a was a really bad kind of re- was a really bad response to a really bad hack. Essentially, half the American population uh, was vulnerable to that. Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one, and you know, so for me, first and foremost, uh, when an individual or a company gets hacked, I you know, my sympathy goes out to them because they are a victim of a crime and they should be treated as such. I mean, when somebody robs a bank, nobody says that dumb bank, I can't believe they had money and their doors allowed people to come in and rob them. They say, what an unfortunate scenario. And it looks like they had security, you know, outside and they got around security and they didn't care. And we don't say that in the digital world. We say, well, somebody must have been uh, derelict in their duties, who should be fired? And it's just kind of interesting to me that we still kind of have that reaction. But we may look at what happened with Equifax and say, well, there were a lot of opportunities for them to maybe they could have had a data breach not be as catastrophic as it was to you and me and everybody else whose data was in there, right? Had they encrypted data at rest? Had they been tracking exfiltration of information, leaving their enterprise network? You know, different things that they could have done, and that's right. always had great. They, had they had updated their software appropriately, is is really another exactly. Thing, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so to me, I think that the, the best way to be prepared and to communicate appropriately and to maintain your brand reputation because you maintain your promise is first of all, you need to get that playbook in place and rehearse the playbook as if it were a real deal incident on a regular basis from your board all the way down to you know the parking lot attendant who makes sure it's only employees parking in the parking lot and you need to really understand what the playbook is based on the incident based on the data taken based on whether or not you've got operational stability issues or operational outages and then practice and rehearse that once you have that hopefully you'll never need it but when you have that incident you get the playbook out And to me, what I have seen is companies who did that, companies who were transparent, 
companies who came right out front and said, we have an issue, we don't know the full extent, we're going to be back in touch, but out of an abundance of caution, if you are our customer, you should do the following things. And I know that the fraudsters are going to get started as soon as this press conference is done. So let me tell you up front, we will never send you an email asking you to click on a link and enter in your PII, your personally identifiable information. And if companies would do that, you notice that people are sympathetic to their plate. They get it. These data breaches happen. You were honest. You were transparent. You gave me a 1-800 number I could call if I didn't understand what was going on. You told me what to do so I won't be a victim. It's when you let it drag on so you find out, uh, you know, how long Yahoo knew that email accounts and passwords were breached before they told anybody. Uh, same thing with Equifax. Uh, people have to question, why did you sit on this so long? And then they saw that stock was also sold. Right. And maybe, it, that maybe just the look two good. had nothing. Yeah, and, and maybe the two really didn't have anything to do with the other, but it's bad. And so if, if you would have had some transparency to say, I know this looks bad, but let me explain this, then many people are going to give you a pass. So that to me, if you can have that playbook, practice it, and then be as transparent and open and honest with giving people, here's what you can do about it now, and tell them, hey, I'm sorry. I mean, say, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. um, I can't get a new mother's maiden name and the last three places I lived and a new social security number and a new date of birth and all of the information that was in Equifax that's used for, you know, kind of the secret questions and, you know, the things you get prompted on that go on loan applications. I can't get any of that new. And so just say you're sorry that it happened. So those, those, I think, can go a really long way, and you can tell it when there's a data breach, which companies have thought about this and practiced it, and which ones haven't. Right. No, absolutely. And I think, I think you're right. I think another you know, big issue that people uh, don't, you know, just aren't aware of um, you know, is that they'll never call you, and, they'll, and they're not going to email you directly. Um, you know, if, when, you know like, like you mentioned. And I think I, I, my mother got a call from, quote unquote, Apple. Uh, it even said Apple Inc. on the caller ID. And and she and she 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 called me. She said Apple called me. They said there was an iCloud breach. It was some weird recorded message. And then it said you know to speak to someone hit like one or whatever. And I'm like, just don't do that. That's 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 not real. <laughs> and basically, so she ended up recording it for me. And she and she sent me it. And then and and essentially, what happens is the you know if if you went through it, they have you install software so they can remote access your machine. Um, and it's. It's unbelievable how uh, how crazy these scams are getting uh, to just to get more personal information to to hold your computer hostage to hold your device hostage, um, which brings me to my last question before we get to the lightning round for you, which is, what's the best way as an individual you can stay secure online? Is is it common sense? Is there some software involved? Is it a mix of both? You know what what you know is a layer is a layered security approach. It, it, it's a little bit of all of the above, and you know, I always say, educate yourself. Um, our company, Fortalist Solutions, provides lots of tips and tricks on how to stay safe online, both business and personal, um, how to stay safe traveling, um, a hint, don't use free hotel Wi-Fi, um, what to do <laughs> if you see anything suspicious. I've actually written two books that can be pretty helpful on this with a privacy lawyer. Um, protecting your internet identity, are you naked online, and privacy in the age of big data, 
which, by the way, um, those were both rated number one summer must-reads by my mother, and everyone should listen to my mother. So, um, Absolutely. So you, and you have I'll, I'll, I'll rate them must-reads as well. Uh, definitely check them out. <laughs> And, uh, but, you know, people would, we've got a newsletter, we never sell your data, it's really meant to just sort of advise and counsel. Um, you can email bonus at com, but also you can follow us. So I'm, I'm Tracker Payton on Twitter, and we have Fortalist LLC on Twitter, uh, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and we're always putting articles and things out there to think about for companies design security for your employees and yourself like just know they're going to use free wi-fi they're going to recycle passwords they're going to respond to emails that trick them into giving up information and they're going to break all the security rules because they're not security employees and we don't want them to be we want them to do what you hired them for and by the way i'm going to let everybody in on a little secret and i hope my security professionals aren't mad at me that security employees break the rules too. <laughs> um, so make sure you're, you're designing your data strategies. Really be thinking about your data architecture and say, look, if somebody gets in, you know, if you think about this, when you go on vacation, you don't say, okay, I'm going to turn on some lights. Maybe they're on timers. I'm going to hold the mail in the newspaper and I'm going to set the house alarm, lock the doors, let my neighbors know. So you've done like all these precautions, right? I mean, you don't say to yourself, well, I'm feeling really cocky about the fact no one's going to break in, so I'm going to leave all my valuables right behind the front door. Nobody <laughs> would do that. Like, you have your, right, you have your sock drawer, you might have a safe, like you tuck things away. And think about that with your data. Think about, you're not going to leave it all by the front door. So regardless of what layers of security and depth and defense you have, be thinking about, how do I hide things? How do I physically and logically segregate and hide things so that when we do have a data breach they can't run off with everything right right no Teresa Payton I really appreciate you being on the podcast today it's been wonderful I really enjoyed our conversation and I actually I wish we had a lot more time to to discuss this stuff because it's truly fascinating to me um and and it, there's just so much to discuss but I, it is time for the lightning round which is uh, uh supported by Wix which is uh, which allows you to create a professional website, and then you can visit them at wix.com. That's wix.com. So whenever you're ready, Teresa, we'll get started. Let's do this. All right, here we go. What's your must-have security software? LastPass Premium. Nice. That's a good one. I, I'm a fan of of One Password, but LastPass is also very good. I'll take that. Well, match <laughs> with my YubiKey. So I'm sorry, that's two things, but I I, I never use it without my YubiKey. Okay, well, Google just uh, just did something with that that was really interesting. We don't we, uh, we'll have to talk about that another time. Um, so, coolest part of flying on Air Force One? Calling my dad and my husband from Air Force One on Father's Day, and because the way the call comes in, it says I have a call for Chris Payton from Air Force One. That's amazing. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> Uh, favorite movie? Princess Bride. Oh, that's a good one. Um, what's more well, challenging? That's after Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail, which I've completely memorized. Nice. I'm, I'm a huge movie buff, too, and I, I, I can recite movie lines like nobody's business. <laughs> uh, what's, what's more challenging, being White House CEO, CIO or running your own, your own company? 
White, uh, well, White House CIO, there's so much at stake, but I'd have to say CEO because people's paychecks are depending upon you to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. I could, I could see that for sure. And last one, this one hopefully is the easiest. How do you relax? You have a lot of stress. You've had a lot of stressful jobs. You have a stressful job as CEO. What do you do to relax? Uh, I feel relaxing is completely overrated. Um, <laughs> and I'm an, ad- <laughs> I'm an adrenaline junkie. So where I kind of get my reset and my zen is I get up really, really early in the morning. And I go for a really long run. And I use that time to kind of get reset and get my zen on and say my prayers and think about my day. And so that's, uh, I feel like I'm going to have downtime when I'm six feet under. So that's, that's, that's what I'll <laughs> You probably, you'll, you'll have a lot, you'll have, you'll, you'll have a lot then, I would, I would imagine. Unless there's a zombie apocalypse, then maybe not so much. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, Teresa Payton, it's been great speaking with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and please have me back. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.